Scuba Obsessed is the weekly podcast we talk about all things scuba diving, from cool new gear, places to dive, and scuba to news. Scuba Obsessed episode 293 is recorded live August 11th, 2016. Welcome back to Scoob Obsessed. I'm Darren Jolson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan. Joining me this week, we have Jim Schultz. How are you doing today, Jim? I'm doing great. I'm dripping wet. Just got out of the water. Awesome. That's great to hear. We also have Kevin Ailes joining us this week. How are you doing today, Kevin? Excellent. Yourself, Darren? I'm doing well. And we also have a special guest this week. We are joined by wreck diver John Chatterton. How are you doing today, John? I'm doing good, Darren. How about yourself? I'm doing very good, especially now. It's nice. We we get this chance if when we're not diving to get out and talk about some diving, and we certainly appreciate having you agree to come on the show with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. And we have to give a shout-out to uh, Scott Halbert, who connected us. Uh, I understand that he was one of your students. Uh, he, he is uh, a former student of mine. He's also known as the Tacoma Bottle King. Uh, yeah, I think that's kind of the reasons he got hooked on the show. He loves to uh, see the bottles we're pulling out of the rivers in the Midwest, <laughs> and uh, I think he likes to compare Hutchies. Yeah, no, he is he is uh, an avid diver, and he's uh, you know, a very talented guy. He... Uh, he is a trimix diver, but uh, his bread and butter diving is bottle diving out in Washington. Well, that's awesome. We pr- appreciate we're kindred spirits that way. So for those who who might not know who you are, and I, I don't know how that would be, uh, you, they can go to uh, your website, which is johnchatterton.com, and you've got a bio, which will give them a little bit of a background. But uh, could you just give us like the elevator version? Well, you know, I, uh, I'm a wreck diver. I am a commercial diver. I've done a lot of salvage projects, and uh, diving is pretty much uh, pretty much a big part of my life. And I, I've been very fortunate to work with uh, Rob Curson, who wrote a couple of books, Shadow Divers and uh, Pirate Hunters. And at uh, a few years ago, I did some work for the History Channel. We did a series called Deep Sea Detectives. So if you've uh, watched TV or read any books about diving, you might have heard my mentioned. And those are all some great programs. I dare say that everybody in our local diving club has partaken of all of those. <laughs> now, the, one of our standard questions that we ask everybody who comes in the program is, what triggered you to get started in scuba diving? You know, when uh, I, I was a kid, I was, you know, I, I kind of spent all my summers at the beach. I grew up on Long Island, and uh, I first went scuba diving. I was like 10 years old in a, in a freshwater lake with uh, with the neighbors. The people who lived next door went out on their boat and took me along, and they, they put like a 50-cubic-foot uh, aluminum cylinder on my back and tied a rope around my waist and told me I could go diving. But, um, you know, as I grew up, I, I was in the military. When I got out of the military, I 
literally had an epiphany. Uh, I was trying to put the GI Bill to use, and uh, literally in the middle of, of the night, I woke up and said, I'm going to be a commercial diver, even though I didn't know what that meant. And um, as a commercial diver, I, uh, you know, I worked my nine-to-five jobs during the week, and on the weekends... I started wreck diving. I fell in with a bunch of guys uh, on a boat called the Seeker. Bill Nagel kind of became, the captain of the Seeker kind of became my mentor. And it hasn't stopped. Would you say that wreck diving is your primary passion? Yeah, but, you know, one of the things about diving for me is that it is, you know, I mean, it's such a complex activity, you know, uh, especially wreck diving. You know, you can work on one thing and, become really focused on it yet you know there are so many other facets to it every time you turn around there's another opportunity or different way to look at things and it keeps it very much in my mind fresh new and and challenging and and i you know i I really thrive on the the various challenges you know i mean if if you're if you're looking at shipwrecks you've got the historical research you've got the the diving innings, boating innings, trying to make the boat get to the place where you want to dive. I have, uh, you know, if, you, if you're going to work on a wreck project, go out and try and find a shipwreck. It's somehow, some way, you got to bring all that stuff together. Certainly. Go ahead, Kevin. I'm Kevin Ailes, uh, well, local diver here. Um, honored to meet you there. I really enjoyed uh, Shadow Divers. Um, heard, heard a great deal about you. Um, it's a pleasure being on the show with you here. I do have a few questions for you. Um, I've actually taken some questions from um, some of our local big names in diving here. One of the questions kind of ties in with what we're discussing right now is um, that uh, Craig Rich, he's the uh, co-chair of Michigan Shipwreck Rich Association. And uh, his question for you is, uh, as someone who's both all over the world, how would you compare that to, uh, how would you compare Great Lakes diving and have a particular favorite shipwreck in this area? Um, well, first of all, thanks for the, uh, the, the welcome, Kevin. And, uh, it, you know, Great Lakes diving, I think, is, you know, I mean, this is exactly what I mean by the, uh, the, the diversity of challenges in diving. You guys have uh, some incredibly well-preserved wrecks, uh, the weather conditions, the underwater environment can be extraordinarily challenging and um i think by and large great lake wreck divers are some pretty serious guys you know uh, uh the diving that you guys do is challenging and, and you guys work hard at it um you know if i if i had to uh, pick one one wreck that i thought was was really interesting um maybe, perhaps my favorite uh, maybe i'd say the milwaukee car ferry um, just because I, 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 you know, we, we did a deep sea detectives episode on that and, and the, the history of the car ferry and exactly, you know, what happened during the sinking, how the wreck played into figuring out what happened. I, I just thought was, was fascinating. It, it kind of embodies to me what wreck diving is all about. And, and you guys up there continue to find uh, newer and challenging wrecks. But, um, you know, it, it, the, the history of most of those great, black, 
Great Lakes wrecks is so fascinating. Yes, it is. I mean, our, all the aspects you mentioned of it and more. So, you know, and we have quite a few people in our club who, um, who no longer dive, but still really into the historical aspect of it as well. Well, you know, that, that's, that's certainly one of the, one of the things, you know, when I was uh, working in, in New York as a commercial diver and, and wreck diving out of New Jersey, you know, I mean, we, we had a season that, uh, you know, started and ended and then you, you'd have, uh, you know, the off season where you weren't really diving. And for me, that was the time where I could really get involved in uh, researching shipwrecks and collecting archival material and, and trying to, you know, figure out um, how I was going to dive or how I was going to find particular acts. And, and that side of it, the research side, archival material is in many ways uh, just as challenging and exciting as, as the diving into things. So you know, I mean, for, for me, wreck diving is a lot more than just, you know, throw a set of tanks on your back and jump in water. And, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I think that's true of most wreck divers. So when, when you're doing your research, are you more of old archives, you know, libraries, or are you using the Internet or a combination of? Well, you know, I mean, when I started researching shipwrecks, the, you know, the Internet, you know, was pretty much worthless. Uh, the the repositories of, of records and photographs and all that kind of stuff everything was everything was paper everything was like original documents and uh so you know i mean for me i always felt like i had to get right to the heart of the matter and that would be uh, uh, museums or the national archives in washington dc the national archives has a bunch of different you know branch facilities as well uh U.S. Navy Historical Center at the the Navy Yard in Washington D.C. Some of that material now is is on the internet, and and certainly you can you can access a lot of things without ever leaving your ri- living room. But I, but I think there's you know if you if you look at the really large record repositories, that stuff's not not all online. And uh, so it, it depends on how active you want to get with your research. You certainly have the opportunity to uh, go out and original research. And, you know, I mean, original research is extraordinary, extraordinarily valuable for people who are looking for a shipwreck that is yet to be found. If you If you rely on other researchers to interpret the original data, um, you're only gonna you, you're only gonna know what everybody else who has not found the wreck knows. If if you want to find a wreck that nobody's found before, you, you need you need to really, you need to look for those those small pieces of information that you're really only gonna find in in original research, original documents. That makes a lot of sense. You know the the internet the internet is 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 very interesting, but uh, um, it, you know it, it is also it, it is also a place that that has a tremendous amount of, of opinion, and, and for research, I, I mean sometimes you want other people's opinions. You you want the the perspective of uh, 
other divers, what, what was their experience. And, um, you know, that, that, that can be important, but it, it, it is what it is. Mm-hmm. Okay. And ori- original documents give you, give you raw information. And sometimes that's what you need. Do you have a challenge of filtering through some of that information now with the internet that sometimes the, the results are so broad that it takes a little bit more filtering? Uh, you know, I, I think we all do. You know, every, every time you, you, you go on the internet, you're, you're trying to find out which kind of sneaker you want to buy from Amazon. It's like, you know, you go to the reviews and it's like one guy hates it, one guy loves it. You're trying to figure out. Uh, um, how, how well that's gonna, gonna play for you. And, and when it comes to information on, on shipwrecks, you know, it, it's, the, it's the same thing. It, you know, even when, when you get into original documents, it's, it's, you know, it, when we were doing research on, on U-boats, you know, you, you get into the original material and, and you're reading, you know, literally the, the typewritten words that were you know, written down at the time that were recorded at the time, and it was the the perspective of of the the writer, and it it, it can be an official document, and it can be part of a larger text, and all that. It doesn't necessarily mean that it was right. You know, it, it is it is a person writing about an event, and you know, they may or may not be accurate in their representation it's what they what they knew what they understood at the time so really we, you know it doesn't matter whether it's the the internet or, or original documents or you know the the opinion of of experts um you know it 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 may or may not be right so interpretation is key to taking any of that information and and putting into the context that, that you want to use it for. Mm-hmm. Now, in, in your research, uh, I know part of this answer already, but i um, curious, uh, how much have you worked with um, survivors of uh, different Rexy Doles? Um, have you met many of the survivors or family members of people on the Rex? And how did that affect you? That's actually well, a question I have from Valerie Van Heeks, who is also Michigan Shipwreck Association. Yeah, you know, um, when, when we did, uh, Deep Sea Detectives, we did like 57 episodes. And, um, a- anytime we were doing a program, if it was a modern era, we would try and reach out to survivors, uh, uh, survivors, uh, 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 family members of survivors, uh, family members of, of people who were lost in the sinking to try and, and, you know, make that human connection. And, and, and that's, that's very much what wreck diving is all about. When, when I was living in New Jersey, I, I found a, um, I, I went looking for and found a wreck called the, the uh, SS Carolina. It was sunk by a German U-boat in World War One, June 2nd, 1918. And in the sinking, the passengers had to take to the lifeboats and Although no one was, uh, uh, no life was lost uh, on the wreck, we were abandoning the wreck on German artillery fire from the uh, U-boat. The uh, that night, one of the lifeboats capsized, and, and 13 people lost their lives. And, and this was, of course, when the, the first attacks 
German U-boats. They came across the Atlantic. It was an effort to try and make the United States understand that this wasn't necessarily just a European war that we had just gotten into. And, And certainly it was an effort by the Germans to try and intimidate us to sue for peace, which was what they wanted at that time. But anyway, I, I found the wreck, and in my exploration of the wreck, I found the purser safe, and uh, what I thought was the purser safe. Before I brought it up, I, I went to court. I wanted to go into federal court and make it all legal. I had an attorney that would work essentially pro bono for me, and we went to the federal courthouse in Trenton, New Jersey, and we got all, all the paperwork and submitted it. And all of a sudden, the clerks are kind of running around. and Stuff seemed like it was happening. And, and I asked my lawyer, I was like, something's not right. I said, can you, can you see what's going on with our stuff? And, you know, in the federal court system, they have like a, a batter up thing where judges are assigned to the case. And as every case comes in, it's assigned to a particular judge. Well, throughout the courthouse in Trenton, uh, everyone knew of Judge Joseph Rodriguez, who was the first Hispanic federal court judge in the state of New Jersey. And when he would give the oath of citizenship to immigrants who were becoming nationalized citizens, he would, he would tell them the story of his father, a Cuban that would come to the United States. Um, he had booked passage on a ship and the ship was sunk by a German boat and his father spent two days in a lifeboat, first setting foot on American soil as he stepped out of the lifeboat in the surf in Atlantic City. And it was, you know, I mean, it was an event. The Shriners were in town having convention. And uh, the Shriners band, seeing these survivors of this ship sinking, started playing the the Star Spangled Banner. Women were fainting. It, It was, it was an event. And, the judge's father, as it turned, had been on the SS Carolina. And so ultimately I would, you know, meet the rest of the, the judge's family and that kind of thing. But he, human connections are, you know, I mean, the thing, it's the thing that kind of drives history. It is always a, an honor, a, a, a true honor to have that kind of, of contact. I, I just had somebody last week who had emailed me. It was somebody whose grandfather had been a stowaway on the Carolina and sur- survived the sinking, and he was just, you know, reaching out to me about more information on the, on the ship itself. And I think that, that kind of stuff is great. I, I think for any of us that, that dive shipwrecks to have that kind of personal link the the history is is awesome yeah i i mean i agree with you wholeheartedly john i mean um it's so much more than just a dive i mean it's all the nation gathering coming up to it and that's what really it makes the connection with the record diving there when you are there like wow this is the boat that i've been reading about this is where all the stories came from and you Able to, you know, to put your hands on, on, on the gash that, that it sent it there, or you're seeing the empty davits where, which formerly held the lifeboats that were lowered. And, you know, it, it definitely stirs something within you to, to actually lay your eyes on these things. I mean, I agree with you wholeheartedly there. 
Well, you know, the, the wreck, the wreck itself is, is very much tangible history. And, you know, I mean, you can, you can go down there and it's like, you are, you are there, you are in that place. Um, the, the human connection is, uh, um, you know, some, something, uh, something different, but, uh, you know, a, 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 another facet, the attraction of Shipwreck. Very much so. You know, I, I uh, uh, um, at the end of last year, I went up to Oak Island and uh, did some dives up there with uh, uh, the, the guys that are working up there. Oh, was the, it the uh, Laganus Brothers? Is that the- yeah, yeah, and uh, uh, Rick and Rick and Marty. What awesome guys! But you know, I mean, for me, going to Oak Island. Oak Island's a place I remember reading about when I was like a little kid. You know, it, it, it's like you know the treasure of Oak Island and the, and the timbers and the the, uh, the you know the the booby traps and the mystery and how was how was all this? You know, what is the purpose? What's behind everything on Oak Island? And for me, it was you know I mean it was it was a big thrill to go up there and just and just be there. And, uh, you know, the, the diving was fun too, don't get me wrong. But, you know, I mean, just to be up there, Oak Island, I, I really felt like I was like, uh, I was, I was part of that ongoing history. What, what prompted you to finally take that on? Did they contact you or? Um, yeah, I, I actually, they'd, they'd had a couple of guys, uh, uh, who were, who had tried, uh, making it happen up there and, and they weren't having a lot of success. And, um, one of the, uh, one of the television production people actually called Aqualong and they said, you know, this, this is what we're trying to do. And we, we, who should we talk to about making this happen? And, and I've had, uh, you know, a relationship with, with a good relationship with Aqualong for years and years. And, and uh, they, they sent them my way. Well, that's excellent. Yeah. I've been hooked on that show. Watching it forever, and I'm sure, like many other divers, every time somebody got in the water, you know, we're backseat driving, saying suggestions of how things should have been done differently. Uh, well, let, let me let me just say, uh, all of all of the guys up there, uh, um, Rick and, and Marty and, and Dave and, and everybody, they are they are such good guys. They are exactly what you see on television. Um, it's it's amazing. They're 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 totally committed to that project, and they're uh, um, I, I I had uh, such a good time. I, I have great respect for those guys. And uh, you know, if uh, if they ever need a diver again, I jump on it. And- well, excellent. The 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 thing is just the amount of money that they have to be putting into that project uh, to self fund what they're trying to accomplish. Well, yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, that's kind of the way it is with, with guys that are really determined. You know, it, it's, you know, that they, they are, for them, it's not about money. Even the, the treasure isn't about money. That they, um, they, they don't care so much about how much they're spending. That they, what they care about is figuring this thing out. Mm-hmm. 
and that's, you know, I mean, that's what makes them so genuine. It makes, you know, it's not like a business proposition. This is something that they, they really strongly, uh, um, feel, you know, I mean, this is, this is part of who they are and they, they want to, they want to get to the bottom of this mystery. What is Oak Island all about? And that's got to be quite a challenge of, you know, you talk about a case of filtering through data is that that has been <laughs> ongoing for so long and so many people have been involved and every generation who works on that location is trying to find a way of getting investors. So if at any time through that chain of events you had an unscrupulous group who was there, that could muddy some of the information that's available. So you have to go and look and say, you know, who can I trust on this historical information? What was really truly information? And what was it somebody trying to convince somebody else to give them money? You know, because I, I have no doubt that most of the people through the hundred and plus years who have been on that are trying, who, who believe there's something there. But you also, when you're trying to get investors, you have to, you have to make it exciting and there's some return on investment to get people to put the money in. I mean, you, they've well, had, go ahead. They, they, they started, they started up there in like the 1700s. And, and, and the, the biggest problem is the, you know, everybody who, who who's been there, uh, um, the documentation of, of, you know, what they did and where they did it in many cases just doesn't exist. So, so you're trying to, when, when you know, people were digging around, you know, you know, a couple hundred years ago, it's, you know, I mean, what were they doing? Are, are you, are you, are you discovering what they did or are you discovering what they were looking for? Yeah. It's, it's, it's a, it's a very, you know, it's an incredibly complex puzzle to try and, try and figure out what's, what's going on out there. Yeah. And it is, it, you know, the waters have been muddied as much as humanly possible. Yeah. Is that, is that timber from an excavation or is that timber from the original treasure? Yeah, it, it, exactly. And, um, and, you know, I mean, where, where do you go for, you know, the, the documentation of what was done? You know, I mean, you're, you know, you're way up there in, in Nova Scotia. Uh, you, you know, you're not, you know, this isn't part of a, a big city or anything like that. There's, you know, how, how do you get information about what happened in Nova Scotia? At Oak Island 200 years ago. Pretty tough. Now, kind of on that same topic, when you're looking for, for shipwrecks or you've found a shipwreck, do you run into the same thing where you've got to peel back some of the layers of what's may have happened to that wreck? Well, you know what? Every, every, you know, shipwrecks are unique the same way people are. Every, everybody's different. Every, every wreck is a little bit different. You know, in, in many ways, it's almost easier to, uh, um, figure out that, you know, if everybody's looking for a wreck in a particular place and they haven't been successful, typically the reason is it's the wrong place. It's not necessarily the wrong people. But, you know, if, if a wreck is easy to find, somebody's already found it. Um, when, when, uh, when, when we were looking for, uh, the Golden Fleece, the, the pirate wreck down in the Dominican Republic in Samana. You know, everybody and their brother had, you know, looked around Cayo Leventado. Cayo Leventado was, you know, careening 
Island. When when the French were there during the Napoleonic era, they called it Bannister Island. Alternately, Bannister Island, Pirate Island. Uh, um, that was the local history. Historically speaking, they said this is the place where the great pirate battle uh, between the the Royal Navy and the pirate Bannister took place. But you know, when when you're actually there. And, and you're dragging a magnetometer around and you're trying to, you know, you're trying to put all the pieces of the historical record into context. It's like, this doesn't seem like the right place. This doesn't seem like it makes sense. And, and you know, the more, the more we understood Bannister himself, it's like, why would a guy, why would a guy be really, why would a guy be smart enough? That, that he could actually steal his ship away from the, the British in Jamaica, must, muster his crew, sneak past the, the fortifications in the middle of the night, uh, take out, and, 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 you know, when he does careen his ship, he finds a, you know, a, a place, a, a, a lair, a, a base of operations. He's smart enough to build shore battery. The, the guy is, a leader that was able to motivate his men to fight the Royal Navy to a standstill. This was a this was a very talented guy. Well, in it, from remembering from reading the book, it seemed that he was. To, to me, it's it's puzzling as to what caused him to even go to the pirate way. I mean, he was fairly respectable. Yeah, but you know I, that that is, you know I mean obviously that that's a very this, you could speculate on any number of, of things, but um, in some ways that almost that almost makes sense to me. In that, if if you, if you try if you try and put him in the context of the, the late 17th century, you know, it, it it's a time and he was a, he was a merchant captain, and, and uh, you know who you know I mean had like a you know a successful career ahead of him, I guess you could say. But it, it, it's, you know, I mean, this, this was a, this was a, a time of, you know, I mean, it was a time of slavery. It was a time of monarchs and, and oppression. You know, the, the social fabric of the world was, was, you know, quite different from anything we, we have today. People, uh, uh, the, the value of human life was, was different. And, and if you, you know, that you've, you've got all of these social elements and he becomes a pirate. And it's like, well, not only does he become a pirate, but he becomes the, the captain. He becomes the elected uh, um, captain of, of his crew. Pirates were, pirates were truly democratic. It was, it was the only democracy uh, on earth at, the, at that time. So it's like, you know, how, how, how much of this had to do with his, his perception of, of the world as, as he saw it? You know, I, I don't think it was, I don't think it was economics that, that drove his decision. I, I mean, it wasn't that he, that he came from, from nothing. But I think he, um, I, I think he was somebody that, you know, looked at and, and valued freedom in a way that was probably unusual for the times and, and, and maybe hard for us to, to get a handle on, you know, some 300 years later. So as a matter, it was his, 
his way of having his own freedom within his time kind of there. I'm not going to take it anymore. Yeah, no, exactly. And, you know, I mean, granted, you know, you, you and I are speculating. This, this was, this was not, you know, Bannister was not a, a sadistic, brutal, right, uh, guy. He, he was not stupid. He, he was not, uh, ignorant. He, he, when it came to being a pirate, he really, he really knew what he was doing. When it, when it came to boldness, he had a, he, you know, the, the Royal Navy arrested him, t- took him back to the Royal, took his ship back to Port and uh, uh, tried him for, for piracy. You know, what, Port Royal was a place where everybody in Port Royal was either uh, dealing in piracy or in business dealing with pirates. So, you know, they found him not, they found him not guilty. He was found not guilty <laughs> by a jury of his peer. He must know? have had a good attorney. Yeah. <laughs> a good attorney. <laughs> yeah. So, so the, the guy gets found not guilty. And so what is, what is the governor of Jamaica go? The governor of Jamaica says, you know, he, he's not guilty. He's guilty. Just hang him. <laughs> you know, it, it's, that was the world that he lived in where the governor could say, Oh, you know, that trial thing didn't work out the way I wanted. Just go out, just go out and hang him. <laughs> and, and instead of, instead of ending up at the end of the rope, at least, at least at that time, what did he do? He, he, you know, he got his crew together. He, he stole his ship back and, and sailed right out of the harbor unnoticed past the fortifications in the middle of them. That's which true. in and of itself took a certain amount of skill. So he, you know, I mean, he was, he was a very skilled guy. You know, as a kid, I remember watching Captain Blood with Errol Flynn. And, and, you know, there's, there's certain, certain elements of the Errol Flynn character that uh, I think certainly pertain to Anister. Lots of guts and smart guy. I'm sorry? Lots of guts and a smart guy. You would use one. Yeah, you know, I mean, he, he was a, he was a very talented guy. And, um, you know, I mean, it was unheard of in the history of the Royal Navy for pirates to fight the Royal Navy to, to a standstill. When the Royal Navy showed up, the pirates were just supposed to surrender. That was it. Or flee, but yeah. And, and it turned into a two day bar- battle. And, and finally the Royal Navy was like, we're, we're out of, we're out of shot and we're out of, we're out of powder and we got nothing else. <laughs> we got to go. John, you mentioned earlier about the, the dedication and commitment uh, and finding a way. I heard a story about how you became a uh, closed-circuit rebreather diver. <laughs> that has to do with dedication, commitment, finding a way, doesn't it? I, uh, you know, actually, I think it's probably more in line with personality disorder. But uh, <laughs> the... the um, you know, when uh, I, I was diving with a, a group of Brits in, in 1994, we, we went, we dove Lusitania and it was, you know, it was a lot of fun. Lusitania is like 300 feet deep. We went to Ireland. We got uh, our, our group collectively did well over a hundred dives. We uh, had a good time and uh, we started thinking, OK, well, what do we do next? And so we decided on Britannic, which was, uh, of course, off the island of Tsia in Greece and about 400 foot of water, a little bit deeper. 
And uh, so we started making plans for an expedition to Britannic. Now, we were, we were thinking maybe it would take us two years to get all of the permits and everything, but um, it, took, it took longer than that. And part of the permitting process, we were meeting the owner of the wreck, a, uh, a, a Brit who had purchased the rights to Britannic from an insur- uh, from a guy who had bought the rights from the insurance company. So essentially, he had he had purchased rights to the wreck. We also had the Greek government and any process and all that. Anyway, the guy who owned the wreck was kind of ass, and uh, he uh, we were meeting with him in order to you know put together uh, all of our we 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 needed his approval. Although the Greeks did not, you know, there was no permit required. We just needed him to sign off on the Greek permit. And uh, so we, we had a meeting with him, and he, he was, uh, uh, you know, kind of an annoying little man. But he he uh, he started talking about, you know, uh, I had a conversation with Dr. Robert Ballard about a uh, the possibility of there being areas within the wreck that uh, um, are anaerobic, and uh, these areas of anaerobic activity might leave portions of the interior of the wreck completely preserved uh, from uh, the day it was sunk. And first of all, I'm like, you know, I know what anaerobic means. Anaerobic means no oxygen, like underwater. Well, let's see, water, H2O, that's not happening. I've also heard this kind of talk in commercial diving, and, and it never, never in reference to a shipwreck has it been uh, anything other than like BS. So, uh, so I listened to the guy and he was like, you know, going on and on. And he, he's like, so um, ultimately no divers will penetrate the rack because the divers bubbles might disturb these perfectly preserved areas of the wreck's interior uh, um, and therefore damage the wreck. So I stopped the guy. I said, well, what about me? I don't make bubbles. And he said, you, you don't make bubbles? Why don't you make bubbles? I said, I dive a rebreather. He said, well, what's a rebreather? He said, a rebreather is a device that captures the diver's exhaled gas, runs it for chemical absorbent where the CO2 is removed. The breathing gas is then analyzed uh, um, for oxygen content and Computers, then through electronic solenoids, add minute amounts of oxygen to compensate for whatever the diver has metabolized in the breathing process. It's a closed breathing loop. There's no bubbles. So he thinks for a minute and he goes, okay, we will amend the permit so John Chatterton can go inside the rack, but no one else. And uh, I was satisfied, but I left the meeting going, holy crap, now i got to go get a rebreather. <laughs> And, you know, I mean, back in those days, rebreathers, rebreathers were a real adventure. You know, I mean, today it, it is, there's a bunch of, uh, of, you know, I mean, real solid manufacturers. But I, I essentially, you know, had to buy a, a prototype from a guy out in Washington. I think, I think he ultimately made nine units. And <laughs> he had five of them in his garage and somehow, some way. I, I, I did my, my two training dives with him. I don't think my bottom time amounted to 
10 minutes because there was a, a catastrophic loop failure on, on both dives. And, you know, the guy was like, well, you know, I don't know what to tell you. And I'm like, well, you know what? I got to make it work. So I basically left with a suitcase full of rebreather parts and kind of built it on a kitchen table. <laughs> it was, it, it provided endless amusement for all the other guys I was diving with as I tried to work out the kinks in the rebreather. There were a lot of days where I'd jump in the water and, you know, parts had been flying off, <laughs> that kind of thing. But I, I became, I became extraordinarily good at, at bailing out on the rebreather. So I, I became, I became an accomplished rebreather bailout artist before I really well, became an accomplished rebreather diver. Th- did you ever get to the point of the caustic cocktail? Yeah, no, I had, had that, you know, also, uh, you know, bypassed with, you know, CO2 and, you know, computer failures and all that kind of stuff. You know, when I actually arrived at Greekwood, I made, I made six dives. I, I actually, I actually set, uh, did, did the tie-in on the wreck, the very, the very first dive that our group did. And, and I kind of did it by myself. But uh, I, I made a total of six dives on, on Botanic, and three of the dives, everything worked perfectly. The other three were pretty dicey. But uh, tor- towards the end, I, uh, I, I mean, I, I had, you know, the rebreather caught fire in my room. I was trying to charge the, the batteries. And <laughs> I had uh, the, the computer. I, I literally was working my way up into the fireman's tunnel towards the boiler rooms and I kind of picked the, it, it, it had, it had a, a computer that did everything. In other words, all my decompression information, the controller for the unit, the, the gas pressures, everything was in, in one unit. And, Yo, um, yeah. So John, I gotta say, I'm, I'm considering going rebreathing myself and you're really not selling me on this idea here. <laughs> um, hold on one second. Um, the, the, uh, well, you know, it's one of those things where you pick up the handset and, and you look at it and you're like, and there's just nothing there. And you're like, oh, that, I really don't, I'm not, this is not a good place for, this can't be happening. So you kind of hold it down and then kind of pick it up and you look at it again and say, no, geez, I wish, I really need some numbers on here. Maybe they're all down in the corner. You kind of shake it a little, <laughs> but, um, that, that kind of stuff. That kind of stuff does not help. And, uh, the, uh, end result is, you know, you, when stuff like that happens, you end up swimming fast. Okay. But, uh, you know, I got, I, you know, I got back to the room and, you know, I called the guy up and I'm like, listen, the entire computer is, is down. And he's like, I, I'm like, what can I do? And he's like, well, yeah, I'll just send you another one. Like, you like FedEx it overnight or something. He's like, yeah. So that, He's, he's like, get me the address of the hotel and I'll send it to the hotel. So I ran down to the hotel and I'm like, okay, I need somebody to FedEx something here. And, uh, you know, what's the, what's the address? And the address was like, you know, just the island of Tsia in Greece. The address was like, you know, triangle, backwards E, happy face. <laughs> you know, I'm like, oh, this isn't going to work at all. And they're like, well, nobody really brings things here. Just have him send it to the to the ferry pier in Piraeus and just tell them to bring it here. <laughs> and I'm like, that's nah, not going to work. So 
I, I, I tried uh, for for my last dive. I tried doing internal repair with a like a soldering iron and hacksaw. But uh, now rebreathers now I think are reasonably reliable. You know, I mean the the operations are still up to the to the uh, to the to the diver, but um, you know. Re- Rebreather, re- rebreather diving is an elevated level. Oh, did we lose you? Hello? Hello? I think we might have lost him. Oh, we did. Ah, I have a few more questions for him, too. Let's see if we can get him back in. still like to hear about the movie. That was going to be one of my final questions. Did you have anything, Kevin? Well, I had a couple of questions here, but they were kind of off topic here. I had a question from Rick Mixter and also one from Ross Richardson, but... I really didn't want to totally pirate the conversation there. Yeah. So, I know Rick was you know, curious, had a question about the media, and um, Ross has a question about a, wreck, about a shipwreck. Kind of surprises you there, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> well, I'd like to thank everybody who's in the chat room. We have quite an excellent turnout. We had Vanessa the Mermaid. We have Scuba Tech. We have Wreck Hunter. Dave Toneman has been uh, shepherding, and he's, he's looks like he's doing double duty in there. He's got a couple systems going and connected on end we'll, we'll give him one more time oh we have uh coultry sub who's in there dave shout out anybody else who we we need to mention and we'll try and get uh john in but i had uh, all sorts of questions if you go to his blog uh which is at john he has some excellent articles and he talks about some things such as um, not only nitrogen narcosis but co2 uh, narcosis I will comment his book, The Wreck Hunters, is fantastic. Now, you say Wreck Hunters. I'm not familiar with that one. Uh, it's the second book that he was involved in, and it's the story of looking for uh, Bannister's ship. Oh, I, oh uh, 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 pi- Pirate Hunters, you meant. Pirate Hunters. I'm ah, yeah. Pirate Hunters, yes. Yeah, yeah we, we, we had the opportunity to interview the author and his, his partner on that, and that was, that was an excellent book. I got a, a sneak peek on that one. And it looks like we got John back on. Yes, you do. Well, thank you for coming back on. I know that you had uh, something you needed to go to after 10, so in respecting your time, did you have anything you wanted to, to say before you have to run? Uh, no, it was, uh, you know, it was a lot of, uh, it was a lot of fun chatting with you guys. You know, I, uh, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try and work with Rob Kirsten on another project in the not too distant future. Oh, so we'll, we'll have to do this again. Oh, certainly. And anytime you want to come on, pitch anything, uh, we've, we'll have links on our website to your website. Let everybody know what's going on. And then we did have uh, one request from Scott, and he wanted to know what the status was of the Shadow Diver movie, if you had any insight you could share. Uh, Universal is uh, is working on it, and uh, they have a, uh, a, a, a script, and uh, we'll see how it goes. Yeah, if if the director is the one that I was able to research and dig up, he's actually a good director and has done some shows I actually like. So that that's always a positive. The, 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 you know, these are these are all like these are all good guys. These are all heavy hitters, and and they literally we didn't go to them; they came to us. And so you know, maybe we'll get lucky. Yeah, they have. Uh, you know, there's there's no superheroes in Shadow Divers, so that's a problem because. Nobody's nobody's going to wear the tights and a mask, but uh, hopefully they'll uh, hopefully they'll make the movie. Yeah, but but with uh, a dry suit and uh, a dive mask, <laughs> it's almost as good. 
certainly the old uni suit. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, anyway, it was great talking to you guys. Well, thank you for coming on, and uh, certainly appreciate it. We'll, we'll talk with you later. Uh, um, awesome. See you guys then. Thanks. Hey, thanks. Thanks. Bye. So that was certainly a pleasure. Anytime we can get somebody like John Chatterton on, and I want to thank again Scott for doing the connection. And if you're out there and you have somebody you think you should be on the show, drop us a line. You can drop us a line at the show at scubobsess.com. We certainly love to have people like this on. And they don't need to be somebody as well-known as John Chatterton, uh, anybody who you think's interested or, or novel. or And we've even done it in the past, if you look at some of the early seasons, we had brand-new divers on the program talking about some of their experiences. And so anything you think that would be interest, uh, go ahead and drop us a line, and we can get something set up. Uh, so what was your, your thought, uh, Kevin, on the interview? Well, it was very insightful. I mean, he, um, he this is a guy who's definitely been there. Um, you know, I did notice some of these, a few topics that he's, uh, very knowledgeable on. He doesn't just, you know, give you a real quick answer. He goes into a real deep, detailed answer on everything that you can ask him there. Yeah. And again, if you go back to his blog, he's not shy about ca- calling somebody out or something out that he doesn't agree with. And that's always nice to have some honesty in an industry where uh, people always seem to be scraping to, to get to the top. Uh, Jim, did you have any, any follow-up you wanted to give? Uh, he's, he's a very interesting speaker. I've heard him a number of times at different shipwreck shows, and uh, he always leaves the crowd wanting to hear more stories. Oh, and I agree. Uh, I'd, I'd love to hear some more stories. And we, and we don't hold it against him that he comes from the Northeast either. <laughs> Well, you know, there's a lot of good divers who come from the Northeast, and a bunch of us bad ones, too. <laughs> oh, and then that was another one. Uh, he had another good article on there. He talked about a diver named Ed. So if you want to hear about the Ed diver, you need to go to his blog and, and look it up. But we've all experienced an Ed. So uh, cer- certainly uh, a great interview. We'll, we'll, we'll try and get him on. We'll give him some time. He looks like he's in a... He's had a few interviews lined up. And also, if you're interested in learning tech diving, he didn't even bring this up. He didn't even pitch it, but we'll pitch it for him. Is if you go to that John Chatterton website, he's got where he's doing training. And it looks like he gets booked fairly quickly. And his advice on the website is make sure that you really want to take the class, you're prepared to take the class. Uh, but if you do, you want to get on it right away as he opens a new date, they fill up quick. So uh, you go down to Florida, get some nice weather in, and do some some tech driving. He's got quite a few courses that he's offering. He would definitely be going to learn from. Oh yeah, I mean, you, you think about it, and the price wasn't. You know, you're you're going to be in for a thousand plus, some cases two thousand, and you have to have the gear. Uh, but it, it's kind of nice when you have an instructor who uh, isn't there to sell the gear. It's he's there to teach the class, and you can get the gear from wherever as long as you meet his minimum requirements. He's okay with it. So. Uh, it looks like a nice program that he's got there. So let's see. We're running, uh, probably by the time we edit this down, we're going to be at just under an hour at this point. So we still have 90 minutes where we can talk about scuba diving. So let's go ahead and jump right on into the news. Uh, lobster season in Florida is starting up. This is not the mini lobster season, but the regular full lobster season. This is when the commercial divers will get into the water and start setting their traps. This will start on Saturday, August 6th. 
And it also allows for some uh, actual divers to get in the water. Regular lobster season runs through March 31st, but most of the commercial harvest takes place in the first few months. Recreational divers with state licenses can resume seeking lobster, including night dives that are banned in the July sports diving days in the key waters. Restrictions against near-store, near-shore diving and snorkeling in unincorporated Monroe County, Key West, uh, Lawton, and, boy, that's a, a name, I, I, Isle Modoya, not even sure what that is. First five days of the regular season, near shore is considered 300 feet uh, for most divers, with exception for waterfront property owners. Swimming is allowed, but without masks or scuba gear. Key Colony Beach has a 10-day near shore rule. Marathon does not have a near shore rule for the regular season. And then if Mac was here, he'd be commenting about the chat room and then the, uh, the chat or the chat comments below. And you've got the looks like the professional commercial guys against the recreational guys. But uh, it is Florida's main, when I say Florida's main, I don't mean main to state, but primary, Florida's primary commercial season for harvesting animals from the sea. There's probably a better term for that, what they call that. Fisheries. Uh, they limit the number of traps that can be set to 475,000. Most are used in the Keys and off uh, Miami-Dade County. All traps are numbered, so they can look at any trap and know whose it belongs to. There are 625 commercial lobster permits for the Keys. Asian markets is the primary market where these lobsters are going to be going. Last year, it was 25 to 30% lower market prices due to the economy in China. They're hoping to have it straightened out this year and have a little bit more money. Um, they said that the research efforts that indicate that spawning season, which happens in Nicaragua and Honduras, indicates that it was a good spawning season and those larvae or baby lobster called uh was that pearly uh will travel north the caribbean and eventually eventually reach the keys so let's see do they have a dollar figure it seems at one point i saw it's going to be 5.2 million pounds of lobster i don't see the number good for them and then here's a, a late entry i hope that you guys got a chance it was the alligator gar is being introduced in several states as a weapon against the Asian carp. I'd like to see that. Yeah, this one's out of Chicago. And what they're talking about is the gar, which is a giant fish, and it was uh, swam from the Gulf of Mexico to Illinois, and they're trying to introduce as a comeback. Several states are they're being introduced, and they haven't been seen in the last 50 years, partly in hope that it'll be a powerful weapon against the carp. The invasive species is gone unchecked the great lakes for decades turns out the alligator gar has a taste for carp and also dwarf the invaders asian carp grow four feet 100 pounds alligator gar can grow nine feet 300 pounds so bring it on of course actually we don't want any asian carp here the larger fish was exterminated from all but the southern parts of the range by anglers who mistakenly believe it threatens sports fishing so if they get the the uh gar back in they're hoping that it can keep these asian carp out of control which is taking up resources that the sports fisherman species would love. Um, Got to find some about the Asian carp. They're on their way. Yeah. Uh, it's only a matter of time. In fact, uh, you know there are some sources that say they're already here. Well, they've had some DNA that's shown up in some of the rivers on the east side of Lake Michigan, but we haven't been able to get any confirmation other than DNA. So you're not sure which way is the DNA moving, and is it an exact match or just something in common? Because I can remember as a kid on the Kalamazoo River, we had carp. So I don't know what percent of carp 
would show positive for however measure whatever type of measurement they're doing. Yeah, and I think these these Asian carp are actually have very little in common with um, you know the carp that we're referring to. Although the carp that we're very familiar with here actually um, understand are uh, invasive species out of China as well. But if you look at what is the the Asian carp, the different varieties of them, they look uh, it's a very different species than the you know the carp that we're used to seeing here. Yeah, cer- certainly a different species. Like with, with the Asian carp, you can kind of see it in the uh, picture here, but you know, it's, they're kind of peculiar that the, the eye lies below the mouth, whereas nearly all the fish species you see, the, the eye is above the mouth. So It does uh, look like kind of uh, they're almost upside down sometimes when you see them. Mm-hmm. And uh, as we've talked about in previous episodes, they believe that the Asian carp were intentionally stocked by uh, people who like the carp and use it as a delicacy because over in Asia it's a quite popular food and people who have come to the United States and want to have some of their native fish uh, may have introduced it's it used to be uh, provided live to people uh, now many states are acquiring that before a butcher can sell an Asian carp it has to be uh, killed and dead uh, the one thing that's unusual is that in Asia they don't jump that that is something that has happened uh when the Asian, the Asian carp came to the West or into the United States, is that there's something slightly bit different about this species uh, that causes them to jump. So, a crowdfunding drive is launched to help scuba divers in a mission preserve a World War II flying boat. This one's out of the UK. Uh, PDST Dive Group uh, is trying to raise money to help bring up artifacts from the wreck, uh, from the wreck, from the the plane. It's a uh, World War II flying boat. It sank 75 years ago and, as they're saying, is a unique part of history. Members of the British Subaquatic Club are trying to raise $9,000 to buy a new engine for their boat so they can keep diving on the Sunderland flying boat, which sank off Pembroke Dock in 1940. The dive group are the only divers permitted to dive on the wreck, removing artifacts from the protected wreck, which is featured on both Channel 4's Wreck detectives on BBC Wales. They spent almost a decade salvaging historic artifacts and wreck, including the aircraft's front gun, turret machine gun, which are on display at the UK's only flying boat interpretation center. Uh, this is the Pembridge Dock Heritage Center, which is run by the Sunderland Trust. But their rib, rigid inflatable boat, uh, it needs an engine. Well, how about that one that Mack pulled all that? Looks like uh, you know, I'm, I bet that's a possibility. Uh, yeah. Probably not exactly what they were hoping for. <laughs> but, I'm gonna get it for cheap. Yeah, I, I bet you Matt can give them give them a good deal on it. And then here's an article that we won't go into too much, but I thought it was entertaining, and it was somebody actually took the time to watch The Little Mermaid, and they forced their friend who was an underwater archaeologist to watch it and comment on the shipwrecks for authenticity. So that is really a challenge. I hope he got some drinks out of it because uh, uh, that might be that that might not be something he actually went to school for. Uh, throughout the article, it seems that it's a little bit closer than you'd expect. Uh, he was trying to date the, the what time period the movie was supposed to take place based on the design of the ship and uh, had it in quite a few different years. Uh, he talked about some elements where it didn't quite line up right. They were uh, looking at closely. Then you got a little mermaid to have it be a accurate with the shipwreck. 
Well, it, it's kind of like looking at Mickey Mouse for the correct autonomy of a of a rodent. Yeah. I, I think you're going to be a little bit off. Yes, the chat room is saying that's somebody with a little bit too much time on their hands. And the lost Cornish shipwreck was a Darwin was found after 50 years. I think it was refound after 50 years. It sounded like they had um, found it before and I guess they misplaced it. You know, that seems to happen a lot with shipwrecks, as as we have seen. Well, you know, um, you see this, the uh, bottom moves around quite a bit down there. And looking at this, this reminds me a little bit of the uh, the Verano. When you look at the just the the shipwreck, this boat in the picture on it, on the surface, it, does, it has a little bit of Verano feel to me. Um, Twenty three adults and eight children on board perished when it sank. I'm sorry, Kevin, I spoke over you. Oh yeah, it has similar lines. I think the Verano was quite a bit larger than this. I got those similar lines. So for the despite an extensive air and sea shirts, the ship supposedly was never found. Uh, disappeared in the heavy seas in July 31st, 1966. On the 50th anniversary, BBC Inside Out South Wales worked with a dive team to uncover what happened. The Darlene had been forgotten because it sank the day that England won the 1966 World Cup. And that's very much the issue that overshadowed it. There's something still, uh, there's something which is still in living memory and the relatives needed some closure. This is an important story for them. The tragedy took place. 45 feet pleasure cruiser was, was returning to Mylor after a day trip to Fowley. She left Fowley. A storm broke and the skipper, Brian Michael Brown, ignored local advice to stay in port. In addition to the poor sailing conditions, the Darwin uh, was not fit to stay in a fit state to go make the voyage. It was heavily overloaded because of the capacity of 12 passengers. So, so let's do the math. 12 passengers and they had 23 adults and eight children. So, Easily triple capacity. Uh, the hull was riddled with dry rot, and there were only two life jackets on board. Well, that is kind of like if you're making a plot for a disaster movie, that's one way to start it. The vessel did not return to Mylar, and the alarm was raised in the full air and sea search, including the Royal Navy vessel. Uh, after they stopped searching for the wreck, uh, bodies started to show up. Uh, the next fortnight, 12 bodies were washed up on local beaches, including at Lou in Whitsand. Autopsies re- revealed that all lungs were full of water, suggesting the victims uh, drowned in deep water. A child and lady's watch were found, which had stopped working not long after 2100. Lifeboatman Brian Willis says, I used to dream about it. It was so bad. I went miles that day. We wore out. We were out 12 to 13 hours, never found a thing. It upset a lot of people. It upset me because I had a, long, a young child myself. Yeah, well, it's, it's never pleasant when you're looking for survivors. When you read the accounts when they're you know, looking for 2501 or the you know, Chikora or any of them. It's never a pleasant affair. No. But what's, what's, I don't know if it's interesting, but considering 1966, that's not that long ago. So, you know, kind of like what we learned with John, it's probably a case that people just weren't looking in quite the correct place. And I think that's what they find. So if you go farther in the article, they go on to it and it's quite a nice write up. They have some photos. Yeah. What a nice picture. Yeah. And then some positive things that came out of the accident as a direct result of the tragedy, regulations were tightened and strictly enforced. License holders must demonstrate compliance and experience with boat handling and boats must meet minimum safety requirements. So that's even beyond what we have in the U.S. We, at least in Michigan, we don't have any requirements. Anybody can go out and buy a boat, stick it in the water and go. You got, got the uh, checkbook. You can get a boat. Yep. 
Well, that does it for Scuba News. We do have a couple items, uh, so potentially cool what we call scuba gear. And the first one is a camera. It's a competitor to GoPro. And I think I'm going to call this the Yi, Y-I. This was a review that was in Wired Magazine. They talk about a 4K action camera. And the review goes on, and they compare it to the GoPro Black and the Yi. And they get to it, and they show. And for the most part, they're nearly identical cameras. The only difference is that the GoPro Hero 4 Black costs $500, and the Yi 4K costs 250 And the Yi actually had some benefits. It had a little bit better battery life. It had a touchscreen, which you don't get in the Black. You only get that in the GoPro Silver. Uh, but And they said the quality, the, the image quality was a touch better in the GoPro, but low light was better in the Yi. So it it's something that's interesting. And that's something that's been holding me up in doing some projects is, the problem is I don't need one camera. I need like four or five or six. So when you get a camera like this that works very similarly and you get it for half the price, it makes those large projects a little bit more economical. Well, it's always nice to have a spare down there too. You find that the you know, cameras are kind of finicky. You always often get surprises. You get a, you know, a little bit of moisture in the case or battery doesn't quite live up to what you expected. It's you know, when I go out on a project, I usually, I usually have at least two cameras, if not three with me. You know, now are you ready for you? Are you using a GoPro or do you have a different one? Um, I'm using an Intova and a Canon, and okay. then I'll still go back to my mask camera, which is a liquid image. So yeah, so you've got a a nice variety. I've used some Intovas in the past, so that's it's it's good. So I'm looking forward to that. I may have to try it. We're we're, we're getting down to where action cameras are almost disposable, and when you can create 4K video, you know that's good. And then it goes you know, we. You kind of get what you pay for for technology. So there's certain use cases or instances where you might need to splurge and get a little bit better, maybe some better lenses or stuff. But if you got a camera and it's going and it's you're going to use a housing, then some of these are not too bad. Not that I wanted to have a $250 camera leak and flood out, but it's a little bit more tolerable than your $500 version. Yeah, but the um, uh, the, the moisture eaters really make a difference on that, and you know. I've heard plenty of stories where the moisture eaters save somebody's camera. So make sure that you got plenty of those in there when you're when you go down. Now, when you say moisture eaters, you're talking about those little absorbent packs that you put in. Mm-hmm. Correct. Yeah. yeah. And where I see a lot of people do those, and we especially need them here in the Great Lakes. Like this time of year is perfect. You've got your camera open. Uh, you're changing out your memory card. You're charging it, and the air, the humidity in the air, even though it's a little volume between the housing and the camera, you get moisture in there. And if you don't have those moisture packs in there absorbing that, when you drop down, we get below a thermocline and you're in the, you know, 50s to, to low 40s, you can start that condensation, which can fog up your lens, or it can start condensing inside the camera. Say the camera was a little colder than the air, uh, you know, you can have a little bit of moisture problem. So mm-hmm. I, I've, I've kind of heard the same thing. Uh, it's a good insurance policy. Um, you know, GoPro sells them they have the official version but you can also i've heard of people going on amazon and buying them by you know 50 pack or 100 pack mm-hmm. yeah but just make sure that you have something in there because just a little bit of moisture in that lens and some of the models even claim to have a sealed lens it's not a problem um but i know that with my my intobas i have definitely seen moisture on the lens and you know when anything that creates you know any kind of a fog or a barrier it's going to be a problem. So yeah. and, and it's, and, it's just insurance. And that can be a little tough for somebody to troubleshoot with a camera. 
uh, if they don't have experience with it, is that you're on the surface and you're taking photos, and then you go down and you look, notice, you know, all your images are just a little foggy or, or not quite right. But by the time you get up and that condensation, you know, it, the camera warms up and the condensation goes away, you might not realize you had that event. So if, you, if you've got a camera that you don't think is taking as good of pictures as you think it should, that could be a cause. Well, I think most of them do have a clear case on them, so you should be able to notice that down there. You, you, you may not, but... Um, mm-hmm. I know, you know, when, when I've had that issue, I, I didn't see it. I just didn't realize it was such a detraction to my photos until I went to, to the moisture eaters. And wow, it was, um, I'm not going to say night and day, but it really made it made a, you know, a large difference. So, Well, the Open ROV project, they have their Trident underwater drone, and it's now being powered by Raspberry Pi 3 uh, mini PC. So anybody who follows uh, open hardware, knows that the Raspberry Pi 3 is one of the, the newer versions. And you've got Raspberry Pi and you have Arduino. And a Raspberry Pi is really a full-blown computer. You go back 15, 20 years, and that would be a supercomputer on a desktop. But by day, today's standards, it's it's underpowered, but it's more than enough for an ROV to take advantage of. So it's just an announcement that they've got that out. And I, I'm, I'm tempted. Some of these projects are some that I want to try. It might be uh, with my kids being in robotics, this might be one of those projects that I take on, just own and play around with. Uh, Raspberry Pi. Well, that does it for Scuba in the News. Uh, we're to that time of the show. We talk about people getting some dives in. Uh, Mac isn't here because I guess he got a dive in. Jim was here. His phone just died, so he had to jump off, but he got a dive in. Uh, Kevin, I bet you've got some dives in. I've had a couple. Yeah. Um, Jim and I went out to the Hangar uh, Number 5 on Tuesday. Had a real nice dive out there. Um, had about 50 foot visibility. Um, and with Jim had, you know, some substantial deco. I had some very minor deco. I'm not that familiar with deco. I'm just, you know, you know I'm, I'm progressing, but I keep my deco to a minimal. Um, down there and, you know, I took some decent pictures of the propellers in the stern section there. And, um, you know, I think I had about a, 19-minute dive, and when I say Jim had about a, just shy of a 30-minute dive, but that was a nice one on Tuesday. A club did a dive out there on, I think it was Sunday, and, um, you know, it was one of those situations where um, you have to realize that just because things don't, don't, don't go as planned doesn't mean that it's a, a bad day. Um, we have one of those days that teaches you to appreciate the good days on, on Sunday. Um, no, uh, no, no one got hurt, you know, six divers in, six divers out. Um, we kind of had some issues with, uh, locating the wreck and, um, wind was picking up and, um, we decided it was, you know, time to hit in a little bit. We had a plan B for wrecking a little bit closer. We ended up diving on the, um, uh, barge, mm-hmm. which is, uh, actually a pretty cool dive. I know you, you've built that during, haven't you? Yes, I, I've dove that one uh, probably about three times. Uh, okay, and and I like that. That's a that's a nice one. It's kind of like the iron sides in that the depth of the bottom is just a slight bit above recreational depth. I think what's that about one hundred twenty six, one hundred twenty five there. Yeah, pretty close to that. Yeah. Yeah. So you've got a nice bottom. We're on Ann Arbor Five, even though you can get on the wreck at recreational depth. Uh, you really have to snag the wreck or come down a buoy uh, because the bottom's at one hundred sixty feet. Mm-hmm. And I think you talked about last week that there is some penetration possibilities on the barge. Yeah, actually, the uh, the barge has a really nice swim through on it. Um, you know, there's a machinery room towards what I call the stern, 
Um, you know, I haven't actually done it yet myself because when I was on it, I was solo diving. I don't, you know, do penetration solo. Of course, I uh, don't think anyone should. I'm sure there are those that would, <laughs> but, yes. uh, um, but you know, like I say, there's a, a really nice swim through you can do on that, on the barge. Um, a lot of fish down there, usually some pretty tame burbot. Um, maybe it's the same burbot over and over again. I don't know, but they're always there. Um, and, you know, they those are plan B. I actually, was not able to make that dive. I made one of the earlier dives looking for the Ann Arbor when we had the, the anchor snagging, you know, complications. Um, I made a dive there, then ended up um, having a regular complication on the, uh, the dive in the barge. I, so I boarded that one. Yeah. But, now, when you, know, you say a, a regular complication, is that just a case of it was, you know, acting up or doing a free flow? Um. Actually, apparently, uh, my second stage spit out the, um, the exhaust diaphragm. Oh. And, uh, you know, on the surface, it didn't seem to be breathing right. I couldn't quite get the flapper to engage. And I thought, well, you know, probably once you know, I, I roll over, get a little bit of water working on, you know, something that was kind of funny on the surface there. Yeah. yeah, because yeah, you... And did my roll over and did not improve at all and went to my, my octo, which was working just fine. But I wasn't going to do a well. A one twenty five dive with only one puncturing regulator because no. if that one fails, then then where do you go? So. Well, right, and that and that's why you've got two. You don't have two to let to go down with one bad. You have two, so you've got a backup if you if one does go bad. So that's a, mm-hmm. it's always a good call to call the dive in that that situation. Uh, now, did you? Of course, we're not making any recommendations to people, but uh, were you? Was it something that you were able to fix yourself, or did you have to to take it in? Um, actually, we're getting parts for it there. It's actually a real minor deal there, and really, I'm I'm kicking myself because I I saw the diaphragm on the floor of the boat and didn't think anything about it. It was a, oh. you know, a little a little quarter sized diaphragm sitting there, and I think I put it up on the dash, thinking it was one of the other guys' you know equipment. That's well, a little and, packaging, you know. Yeah, it, it, didn't, it didn't look like much. It was opaque and, you know, didn't really look like much. So I need to locate actually a couple of those, so I'm not high and dry next time either. So kind of like John Chatterton's rebreather, you know, it left parts all over. <laughs> yeah, not not quite so dramatic as his there, but, uh, so. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad that everything worked out for you and that you're able to figure out what was wrong. Uh, yeah, now, everyone, everyone got dives that day. You no, know, it wasn't necessarily the, the dives they had planned, but um, you know, still we had good company out there, and you know, any diver knows it's not about the wreck, it's about the people, you know, and we had a good time. So, um, so uh, you were talking about snagging the Ann Arbor 5. There's not a buoy up on that right now? Uh, there's a buoy up on it now. Okay, there, so there is one. So after we, we it, found it, we floated it. The, the, there is one on it now. Okay. So, um, But we, we had some complications up there. Um, there was not one when we were there on Sunday. Um, and the wreck, see, Jim and I actually took some measurements on, well, some, some bearings on it. And it turns out the uh, stern of the N number five points north, northwest. And we did have a north wind. Um, makes it pretty tough to get a hook on that. Uh, yeah, that, that's, that's always a tough one. I'm trying to think. Of all the times we've dove on it, we're, we run about 50-50 on snagging it. Uh, well, if, if it's out of the west or the east, you probably do pretty good at putting you know, snagging it there because then you're going to drape over. Yeah. But, uh, and then we had another boat that was out there and, um, you know, 
there, there was a, a morning we got out there, which we had some complications with. Um, while we were addressing those complications, uh, another boat showed up, and uh, they were much larger. And, you know, traditionally, you let the larger boat hook and the smaller boats tie off to the larger boat. And uh, they were having a hard time with it. And, you know, see on our rafts, you know, we're using hummingbirds. And we, we can, you know, we, we know where it is. We got we have good numbers on it. But that's just one with a northern wind. But it's a real challenge to hook. It's kind of like a crane game. <laughs> You've got the, yeah. the, the crane dragging down and you're trying to get it. So not only, because I'm sure there's times where you can have it, have the anchor hit the wreck it just has to bite into something mm-hmm. well i i look at it you know i really i prefer not to actually put the anchor in the wreck just because well that one it's an iron wreck and there really are not an awful lot of purchases on that wreck in fact i think the other boat out there at one point had hooked the wreck and their divers were going down and they came back up because they, they came loose um my preferred method is to actually you know hook it i mean actually drop the anchor a little bit well, I will go into the wind, over the wreck, past the wreck, drop anchor, and then let the wind push me back over the wreck. So when I go down the line, you should see the wreck underneath you at some point, and now and now your anchor is actually hooked, you know, in the mud, upwind from the wreck. You know, I'd prefer I would much prefer not to actually put my anchor in the wreck for you know for, for a number of reasons. So, oh, so you you're not a big fan of putting your anchor on the wreck. I would I would rather not, you know. Um, you know, most of the you know areas in Lake Michigan have pretty good purchase, you know, for an anchor. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm an oversized Danforth with about ten ten foot of chain on it. Yeah. Uh, you know, anchors, wrecks. Uh, you know, you look at some of these more popular wrecks. You know, like um, you know Havana, uh, Rockaway. You know, these wrecks are dove and anchored anchored by uh, hundreds of times a year. Yes. And, when you're looking at a boat, you know, that's, you know, been down for quite a while and maybe not that sturdily built to begin with, you know, like the, the, I think the Rockaway is like a, like a 90 footer. So it's a good sized boat, but it's not like, you know, the Ironsides. Um, anchors do damage to these things. And, you know, I would much prefer to, you know, if you, if you anchor, you know, up current of it, upwind of it, then hopefully your rope should drape across over, over the boat rather than, um, being in the boat. Yeah. Um, yeah. Dave in the chat room was saying he wants to see the boat that is anchored to it when the Ann Arbor five tips over. And, uh, that, that would be quite an event. I think, uh, your boat might become a bobber at that point. I don't think you'd be a bobber. I think there'd be two wrecks down there. (laughs) Uh, we've, we've, we had a scuba joke on, on that one time, but, uh, uh, that is, I, I love the Ann Arbor wreck. It, to me, it's a, it's a novel, unique thing. Uh, I don't know how many times that's happened throughout the world, but to have a wreck, uh, this is a, a car ferry that was used at the Palisades nuclear plant as a breakwater. It got cut, a bulkhead, it got cut in half almost. It had a bulkhead welded into it and they were hauling it across the lake to salvage it. And, uh, that, the, when that bulkhead just leaked to the point where it was no longer buoyant, that, uh, what we would call the bow, even though it was about a third of the way back in the vessel, speared into the bottom. So you've got the, that, that ship speared at a nice, quite a nice angle. I, I have a hard time judging the angle when I'm down there. I don't know why. Yeah. I'm, I'm just going to say it comes up at least at a 45 degree angle off the bottom there. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, looking at the pictures on it, it does look quite precarious. Um, you do kind of wonder, 
if uh, it's going to come down. But, you know, I'm sure someday it will. You know, we'll go out there some spring after a terrible storm, and, wow, the Annabur is down. And, unfortunately, yeah. when that happens, you know, it's no longer going to be a sport diveable because the only reason it's sport diveable is because you have, with that angle, you have just, the, you know, the stern, the very tip of the stern section within sport depth. Uh, the way it is currently, because I was actually, you know, taking some, you know, depth measurements on it there, the uh, center line of the axle uh, appears to be right about 130 feet. You know, so, I mean, the, the propellers. Uh-huh. So if you put down the propellers, and as long as you stay above the center line there, at least according to my gauges, <laughs> that was, you know, the limit of sport depth. Well, and, and something to also uh, take into account is we had some low levels in the lake for a few years. So in my mind, I keep thinking the, that the propellers were at recreational range, but as the lake level has returned to normal levels, it's now a little bit deeper. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that's only going to be just a, a few feet difference there. So Yeah, so, um, your, so your feet are going to be outside of sport level, but maybe your head's in. <laughs> yeah, well, but you know, that's something you want to be very careful of. with that wreck. You know, if you have any loss of buoyancy, you go oh, to the bottom, right. then you are well out of sport depth, and you're going to have issues with, with narcosis and, and decompression coming on you a lot faster, and you can find yourself in a lot of trouble very quickly there. So, yeah. in my position you... on on any time, uh, any time really, you're below, and I don't know what Patty says, but anytime you're below. 60, 70 feet, you're starting to get in the deep. And then I have another classification that anytime, in my mind, mentally, anytime you're getting 100 feet or deeper, you know, that's really a deep dive, even you know, even if you're in recreational range. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not a dive that you can just say, oops, I got a problem, pop to the surface. Uh, yeah. you, don't, you may be able to survive it, but you don't want to. Yeah, and that's those are dives which, you know, our club generally encourages people to have, you know, a, a bailout, a pony bottle. Um, you know, something so that if you do have a catastrophic failure on your main tank, regular system there, you have something to fall back on. Yeah, it's also and, not your first dive of the season. You don't take all winter off, uh, get on a boat in, in May, and then drop down to the Ann Arbor 5. You want to work your way up to it, uh, validate all your equipment, get comfortable, make sure you're in physical condition for it, and then you, you can do, start doing some of your deeper dives. Yeah, and, you know, it should be a, a pretty experienced diver for that as well. You know, that's... Really not when you want to go out there for dive number seven. You know, it's something you want to have. You yeah. know, a good hundred dives on you. And even then, you know, I mean, as we've seen in the media, you know, I mean, uh, you know, fake can strike divers at any any level of yeah. experience. So. Well, and and we've been seeing it. There's, I had a whole lot of questions for John because uh, I know he has some opinions on them. But the as as we're preparing for the show and I'm researching every week. In the six years we've been doing this, there has not been a week where when I search for the, on the topic that somebody did not die. And I know we're talking about a planet with a billion people and we've got millions of certified divers and maybe it's your time and you just die, but there are a lot of accidents that happen. So you just got to be careful. Well, there are accidents, but they really do seem to get a lot of attention. Um, You know, you're looking at, um, yeah, millions of certified divers, you know, thousands of dives happening every single day. You know, I mean, how many of these divers would probably just die of natural causes? You know, I mean, um, it's, 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 it's not a dangerous sport. You know, there is some risk involved to it there, but it's not a dangerous sport. In fact, I, I kind of, we thought there was a question that I wanted to ask of uh, John there. 
um, you know, Rick Mixter and I had a, and having a pretty good conversation about, mm-hmm. um, I, I had asked different people, you know, do you have a question for me, a question for him. And, uh, Rick Mixter, Mixter question, you know, he, um, you know, I'll give word for word what he had for me. Um, you know, do you believe the portrayal of scuba is fair on TV with so many of the shows highlighting the dangers? And, uh, you know, that's a, that's a good question. You know, it just seems that so much of media in the news really, you know, um, puts a lot of hype into the accidents and, you know, and, and the danger of it there. When those of us that do it, you know, we know, yes, there's some risk, but you have plans for that risk. You have redundancy, you know, you have training. Um, you don't go beyond your training. You know, there are courses and classes and things you do, you know, to, to make you a better, safer diver and, and make you able to, to, to go deeper with more equipment and different gases and things. It, it's a progression. Right. So, well, and, and I think it's like any sport. So let's say if we take motocross, is motocross dangerous? Well, if I'm just going to ride it in my backyard, my backyard's flat and I don't have objects to run into and I've learned and taken time to figure out how to operate the motor, the motor, uh, uh, bike safely, then yeah, it's probably fairly safe. But if I live on the edge of the Grand Canyon and I run off it, I'm going to die. And that's kind of the same thing with scuba diving that people don't recognizes that there's a certain level of risk that comes with different types of activity. So shallow diving with an instructor at 30 feet or less, getting training, and that's all you're ever going to do, you're at a different level of risk than if you're uh, an untrained person who attempts to do uh, technical depths. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, um, you know, I remember from Patty Rescue Diver training, the uh, number one cause of accidents is diver error. Oh yeah. Um, just, just keep making the right choices, you know, and if you have to make a choice, you, you err on this, on the side of caution, you know, make sure that you, you know, have plenty of air for what you're doing and that you come up with it with a good margin. You know, um, you know, I know the, there was a diver they pulled off the end Minch uh, several years ago and the diver was out of air and the gauge said like 240 PSI to it still. So, mm-hmm. You might not want to cut your margins that close, you know. I mean, uh, um, that was you know one dive out of thousands and thousands, I'm sure. But it's just you know, um, keep your margins good, be safe. You know, uh, take take a buddy with you. Or although although Mac, I know, has some different opinions on that. You know, there are ways to dive safe solo. Yeah. Uh, I'm not endorsing any of this by any you know by any means here, <laughs> but uh, you know, stay within your training. Yeah, uh, Mac, who happens to be in the chat room right now, is quoting some divers alert network stats, and he says that there were 90 scuba diving deaths per year since 1980. So against the whole sport, statistically, it's really not that dangerous. It's just that for somebody like me who's searching on the news every week, I'm going to see every the two of those deaths every week on average. And at some point you start thinking, what the heck's going on? And, and here in uh, Lake Michigan and Huron, we had two deaths within the, within the last, uh, seven days. Uh, and sometimes it's, uh, it's just age. It's, uh, you have a heart attack and if you happen to have a heart attack while diving or on the surface, you might be able to get rushed to the hospital at depth. You might spit your regulator out and suck in some water. So it's a little bit diff- different conditions. Uh, fatalities for the year were as follows. He said insufficient gas was 14%. Rough sea, strong current, 10%, natural disease, 9%, entrapment, 9%, equipment problems, 8%, could not be determined, 20%. And that's what it's recorded. They believe there are more that aren't recorded. So you have some countries who are not participating in those. But I, I tend to think 
I, I think it's diving, but it's like, uh, it, it's a safe sport, but you, you have to recognize, uh, the risk and you have to have respect for it. You have to have respect for the water and the conditions you're in because it is the environment's hostile, even though if you're properly trained and you have proper working gear and you do the redundancies, it's a fairly safe sport. Look at somebody like John Chatterton, who we just had on. You look at uh, how many thousands of dives he has and the conditions he's been in. If he did not know how to mitigate the risk and have failouts, uh, have uh, bailouts uh, and backup plans, then he would die. So it's really risk management. And that's that article I was talking about, Ed. I'd recommend that you go to johnchatterton.com and read what he talks about, Ed. Yeah, I'll be looking that up for sure. Um, and then uh, Dave says, diving is a risky endeavor. However, the risks may be mitigated through training experience and the proper equipment. So uh, that's certainly what we agree. Um, well, but you have risk everywhere. You know, yeah. I mean, uh, personally, uh, I have, you know, with, with proper equipment and training conditions, I have no problem diving anything in sport depth. Mm-hmm. I won't text drive, though. I mean, I, I've got my limits. Texting and driving, that's, that's scary stuff right there. Oh, that is. Well, well, anytime you take your mind off something that needs attention, you increase the risk. And the thing about driving is that you feel like you, the human beings, my position on human beings in general, is we're very, very poor at evaluating different risks on percents. So we will focus on things that are very rare and that can scare us. But getting in a car and driving where we've got tens of thousands of people a year dying, we somehow have decided that that's a perfectly safe activity. Activity. So we are, we're poor in general of taking a number and translating it into odds that we can relate to personally. Uh, uh, are you seeing these uh, statistics that Mac is uh, pointing out for us out of, from Dan? Um, according to uh, Divers Alert Network, Dan, 2010 Diving Fatality Workshop Report, a diving fatality occurs in one out of every 2,000 with 211,864 dives. One out of every 5,000. Five, 1,555 registered drivers in the U.S. died in car accidents in 2008. So, you know, we're talking <laughs> a lot more likely so to die in a what car. what this is telling me is I should sell my car and I should scuba dive to every place I'm going to go. I need to have a river that goes by my house and I'll just drift dive. Hey, you just, go, you just go for that, Darren. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm ready like, for it. Bring it on. I, I think we should then, fl- flood Berrien County and we'll just dive everywhere. And then he follows up with one out of every 116,666 skydives ended in fatality in 2000. So, you know. So skydiving, uh, uh, see, see now, now in my mind, the only thing I'm thinking is skydiving is almost twice as deadly as scuba diving. So yeah, I see he's trying to talk me into skydiving. (laughs) I I think Mac knows, Mac knows guys that'll get you up there. Yeah. that, That could happen. That my, my, uh, uh, I, I want to say old dive buddy because he hasn't been diving yet this year, but my, uh, dive buddy, uh, he did do scuba diving. I think he's, I mean, skydiving. I think he sco- skydived more recently than he scuba dived. And that's, uh, Jim Kleeman. We're calling you out. You need to come in and do some diving. I know he's got his boat in the water finally for this year. He's been extremely busy with work. So we're going to need to get back in the water. Uh, we need to, I like to tell everybody to take a look at Patreon. If you go to patreon.com forward slash scuba obsessed, and that's patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com scuba obsessed. If you think this show is at least worth a dollar, why don't you drop us 
a little bit of funds. It'll help us fund the program, improve things. I'd like to thank everybody who donated, and we specifically need to thank people at certain levels. And one of them's in the chat room tonight. We have uh, Vanessa the Mermaid. She is at the the level where she gets a call out each week, and it's supposed to be by Mac, who's in the chat room. So I'll I, I say Mac. It's either Mac or me, but I'll, I'll blame Mac. But we got to give her a call out, uh, Vanessa the Mermaid. And let me get uh, the the proper credit, Vanessa. It says Hamiak. She's in the chat room. She'll tell me if I've done it wrong. But I understand, Vanessa, that you've also gone out on your own. So if you're in the San Diego area and you want to do snorkeling or diving, I believe you can get with Vanessa. And she's got a dive operation that you can now work with. So congratulations, Vanessa, for getting that started. We appreciate you supporting the program. And it's through listeners like you that keep us going. Uh, Do you have anything that you want to plug Oh, I do need to plug one other thing. Boy, I'm going to have a tough time editing this down to 90 minutes. Uh, we have, if you are going to be in the Ohio area, White Star Quarry is doing their breast cancer event this weekend. Uh, that's a diver hope fundraiser, bcfohio.org. It starts Saturday at 10 a.m. August 6th, and it's funds that help uh, with breast cancer. Wish I could make it. Yeah, it's a... And, and Vanessa said her website, if you want to give her a little click love there, it's mermaidscubatours.com. And she did say I pronounced it, yes, it's home yak. Uh, she's my friend on Facebook, and I certainly appreciate all the diving out there. And she's in that area of the country that mentally I think it's warm, but I understand that it can be quite chilly diving in that San Diego current. Well, I'm play with us, uh, you know, this time of year, uh, down to 140 feet, 130 feet, excuse me. And I think we had like 44 degrees up there last week. Yes. Yeah. So uh, the the tough thing, I think sometimes it's tough. I like diving in the fall, I think, a little bit better because I don't roast in the surface. Uh, the the one thing with about getting in a dive suit, which I have to give Kevin credit because he's who I bought mine from, but uh, it can be rather toasty. And in the old days where I would could prime with some cold water in my wetsuit, I can't quite do that in my dry suit. Or at least I, I guess I could, but it's not the best situation. Yeah, uh, Vanessa's telling us that it's uh, 52 degrees Fahrenheit below 50 feet. That's still that's still a uh, wetsuit. So if, uh, yeah, well, you can do a wetsuit on that. We've done that. So thank you. Uh, appreciate it. Uh, love those cold weather di- divers and and she's actually or cold water divers and she's actually got some visibility in many cases. So I think it's at that time of show forever going to have any hope of uh, trimming this one down. So are you ready? Let's do it. Bart, a Texas farmer, goes to Australia for a diving vacation. There he meets Shane, an Aussie farmer, and a scuba diver, incidentally, and they get to be talking. The Aussie shows off his big wheat field in Texas and says, oh, yeah, we have wheat fields that are at least twice that large. Then they walk around the ranch a little, and Shane shows off his herd of cattle, and Bart immediately says, ha, we have longhorns, and they're twice as large as your cows. Uh, the conversation is, in the meantime, has almost died when the Texan sees a herds of kangaroos hopping through the field. And he asks, well, what are those? Bart, the Aussie, replies with an incredulous look. Haven't you seen any grasshoppers in Texas? Yeah, I, I probably should have done that with some underwater creatures instead. But you get the idea. So until next week or next time. Go out there and get wet. And Mac in the chat room is saying, stay safe. You don't want to hear what what, uh, Dave is saying. (laughs) 
call recording has been completed. Thank you, everybody. And hopefully I don't have this one messed up with the audio. It looks to be good, so I will hit the off button.